everyone, welcome back to the Aviation Spotters Podcast. I am your host, Colin. I hope all of you enjoyed last week's episode with DJ and him discussing his time as a crew chief and how he came to be one. If you haven't listened to it, make sure to check it out. Hopefully by the time this episode airs, all of the current Aviation Spotters Podcast episodes will be up on YouTube. And as always, make sure to check out the Aviation Spotters Facebook page for up-to-date information and send me those ad geeks who you think should be on the show to talk aviation with me via DM to my Instagram and Twitter, BOI Spotter, Facebook, Ask Spotters Podcast, and always send an email to askspotterspodcast at gmail.com. Now, on to this episode. I get asked a lot about camera setup, or what camera is best for me. Unfortunately, I don't have the expertise to answer those questions. I was a self-taught photographer who really didn't understand the basic fundamentals of photography. However, my guest today does have that experience and expertise. He served over 20 years in the United States Air Force and the Air National Guard as a military photojournalist with tours in Germany and Korea, deployments in Turkey and Iraq. His photos have been shared and published by the United States military, including major news outlets from around the world. He also won Utah Air Guard's non-commissioned officer in 2019 because of the quality of his work. So it is my pleasure to introduce from the Salt Lake City area, Mr. John Wynn. John, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, of course, Colin. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. You know, I first met you just sending you photos when you're with the 124th Fighter Wing and then sharing those. And then I was walking through the static lineup at Gowan Thunder 2017 and I'm going, wait a minute, I sort of know you. <laughs> and uh, and then just kind of grew from there, I guess. Yeah, it's funny how, um, I mean, in 2020, you know, it's there's so many different ways you can meet people. And, you know, the majority of people that I know nowadays, I feel like I've met them through social media channels. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to, you know, have a relationship with somebody online for a year or two and then uh, finally get to meet them in person. Absolutely agree, man. It's just the people that you meet on the social media channels, they become your friends. And then when you actually get to meet them in person, it's, it's just a whole nother level of like, you just say you've known each other for years. Well, and it's a huge, I mean, there are all these different communities, you know, like through aviation spotting or, you know, military channels, there's, it's, it's just a huge world on the internet. And it's cool that we can kind of all connect. And then, you know, sometimes we meet in person and sometimes we don't, and that's okay too. But yeah, it's a cool way to connect with people with similar interests. Absolutely. And then I also met you at uh, Double Tap that one. Yeah, too. yep, yep. Uh, that, was, that was also pretty funny. Yep. But anyway, man, so tell us where you're from and how you got into photography and such like that. Sure. So um, I grew up kind of like a military brat. My dad worked for the federal government and we moved around a lot. Um, so I don't really have a place that I would call home except for New Hampshire, I guess, is where I had my formidable years. But both my parents were both amateur photographers um, in the 60s and 70s. So when I was growing up, I always had 35 millimeter film cameras lying around the house. And I guess my parents, they didn't really teach me per se, but they kind of always gave me the opportunity. You know, if I ever wanted to pick up a camera and go shoot stuff, they'd be more than happy to say, okay, here, take it and run and go shoot. So I kind of had that from a young age, you know, as a young teenager. And then I was fortunate enough in my high school to have courses like photography, advanced photography. So as a uh, budding art student uh, without really motivation to do anything other than art. You know, I spent the majority of my time in high school in the, in the dark room, um, developing film. So, um, Old school. yeah, totally. Um, you know, I, there's, there's, there is, I know, I know it's kind of cliche to say it, but there is something really special about developing your own film in a dark room, whether it's the smell of the chemicals or just being in a complete blacked out environment and seeing your photo just kind of pop up on, on paper in the chemicals. 
it really is. I consider it, you know, magical. Not that I see it as any more or less than digital photography, but it, it it's something that I I don't know. I'm I'm lucky enough, I guess, to have been you know raised in that era where 35 was still kind of prevalent. You know, it still exists today, but it's definitely rare. So <clears throat> did that a lot through high school. Um, but like I, I kind of alluded to, I wasn't much of a student, so I didn't really have uh, the ability to go to college or anything like that. So I enlisted in the Air Force when I was 17. My initial goal was to be a military photographer, but unfortunately, uh, schools are really rare. You know, at the time when I was enlisting, they said, you know, you'd have to wait six months. And I wasn't really in a place in my life that I was willing to wait six months to join the Air Force. So I said, yeah. well, what can get me in boot camp in three days? Uh, so they, they gave me a job as a, an ammo troop, which is a munition system specialist, um, basically a bomb builder. And so I actually ended up building bombs for the first 11 years when I was active wow. duty. Yeah. Uh, quite different than what I'm doing these days. Um, so I, I had a lot of experience in the maintenance world, really kind of, uh, rough and tough, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, but I still had that desire to, you know, to be a military photographer. So at the 11 year mark, when I was active duty, you know, I had tried about three or four times to cross train and the air force calls it uh, mission or, um, oh, what is the term? Now I can't think of the term. Basically they say that the job that you're in right now is more important. So we're not going to let you cross over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, I kind of got frustrated after a few years, so I just decided I'm just going to go it go it myself. Left active duty, joined the Idaho Air National Guard, and went back to school. I started school at Boise State with uh, I was going for a communications program, but I was also minoring in photography as well as a emphasis in media production. So my my media production emphasis was film based. I'd always had a desire to be a filmmaker. Um, if you look around my house, you just see movie posters, and I'm obsessed with the movie Jurassic Park. Obviously, um, that, that yeah, was. Yeah, I see. I see <laughs> the the uh, the Xterra. Yep, the Jurassic Xterra. So if anybody <laughs> wants to follow me on Instagram, Jurassic Xterra. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I, you know, I've always had this this drive for film, whether it be you know still photography or uh, or motion. So I got my undergrad in about three years from Boise State. Like I said, with a focus in media production, uh, started working for a large computer company in the Boise area. I'm not going to say their name, but I worked in their film tra uh, video training studio, um, got some really good experience there, did that for a few years. I interned at a couple of motion graphics uh, areas in the Boise area, as well as Boise Weekly um, as a staff photographer wow. for them, which was pretty fun. I just, it was a summer internship, but it was, it was a really good experience. It was really my first experience at doing uh, journalistic photography, doing event photography. And then um, I started working for the uh, Air National Guard full-time with the 124th. And, it, you know, it, it, it was a completely different experience. Um, I, you know, I've, I've had everything from college training to, you know, just working for the newspaper, a mag, couple magazines, um, corporate America, and then switching over to the military was was quite different. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I ended up in the public affairs realm as a military photojournalist. That's awesome, man. And just going back to what you said is, you know, your parents, they gave you their cameras when he just felt like going to shoot. And I was kind of the same way growing up as my dad had his Pentax K100D. And the only two lenses he had was the 18 to 55 and the 55 to 200 sure. millimeter lens. And when I first started getting into aviation photography, I used to say, hey dad, can I go borrow the Pentax? And so he had to take the lens off and put it back on. And it was constantly doing that, right? For the past, oh, say two years. Mm -hmm. And man, that camera never got clean. So I can show you like near the end of that camera. The, just, it was just, caked with dust sure spots. yeah like this almost unworkable at that point but uh i i really do feel you at that point is 
having the parents give you kind of the keys to the car in a sense, you know, like they're like, here's the camera and it is kind of just blossoming. For oh me. yeah, absolutely. And for those that don't know, the 124th fighter wing is the Idaho Air National Guard. Um, just going to put that out there as well. Yeah. So that's a great photography background and yeah. film background as well. So that's a great lead into the next question is what is your current setup for work and play? So I work my way up. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that jump right in and spend 10 grand on a setup. Um, yeah. you know, and that's any hobby, you know, I'm, I'm an avid mountain biker and I have a lot of friends that have gone out and bought $6,000 mountain bikes, did it for a season and hung it up and it sits in their garage. I don't recommend that for anybody. I mean, yeah. if you have the money, sure, you know, good on you. You're, you're wealthy, but, uh, yeah. you know, most people have to start from the bottom. And I started off with a Canon T2i, um, which is, you know, a decent little crop sensor camera, uh, with a kit lens. And then I bought one more lens for it. I think I got a, uh, 24 to 105 for it. And then uh, upgraded to a Canon 7D and then shot on that for, I don't know, five or six years. And then most recently, about, oh, I'd say two or three years ago, I bought a 5D Mark IV. Um, and Very so nice. the, the Canon 5D Mark IV has been my workhorse. Um, I've got a, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a plethora of lenses. I've got a, of course, a 24 to 70, kind of your standard F2.8 yeah. lens. Uh, I've got a 7200 Canon, which is, I think, my bread and butter. I love that oh my lens. God, that's one of the greatest lenses ever built. Yeah, it's there's there's no competition. Um, you there, know, there, there really isn't. There's a few others out there I think that are good substitutes, but I, I don't think anything can top that lens. And then I've got a an 85 for a portrait. I've got a 50 that I really don't. It's you know just a little nifty 50. I don't really use it that yeah. much anymore since I got the 85. And then um, I got a wide angle, a 14 to 24. I'm sorry, it's a 15 to 30. Um, nice. And yeah, I think that's pretty much my, my basic setup. I will say the one thing that swaps out more than anything else is camera bags. And we can have a whole discussion <laughs> on camera bags later, but yeah. We, we definitely could. <laughs> uh, that's 70 to 200. I, I used one for um, some photo work I did earlier in the year. And I just got my 5D Mark IV in February for this. Mm -hmm. Like I, 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 That was the first real Canon lens that I used. And the sharpness and the speed and just the overall ergonomics of that lens just blew everything else I, I used out of the water. Yeah. And I'm going like, oh my God, this is one, this is, this is fantastic. It's, it's <laughs> this a, is a game changer. I, I was just about to use those words. I was going to say game changer. You know, I, I, when I had my 7D, I had a couple, uh, kind of generic Tamron lenses. I think one was a 28 to 300. There's no comparison I'm trying to put that up against the Canon 7200. It's, by far, like you said, the sharpness, the detail that you get out of it, um, you can punch in, especially on the 5D Mark IV, you can punch in and corners are nice and crisp. Yeah. Um, the focusing is so fast. Um, and, if, laser. and of course, we're going to get to that, I'm sure here shortly, but you know, yep. be, having a moving object and being able to track with it and have something focused that quickly, it, you have to have that. And that is one of the few lenses that can keep up at that speed. Yes. Yes, and any Canon L glass lens, but like I said, we'll get into the lens talk here later on. Sure. And for play, I understand you use a D eight hundred. So, so other way around. So actually, the the five D Mark IV is my play. Yeah. So yeah. for work, I use yeah Nikon D eight tens, D eight hundreds. I've shot on a couple other like the D four S. The the military, the Air Force actually just uses Nikon primarily. Um, it's nothing. There's no reason, so I'm, I'm, I just want to put that out there right now. There is no specific reason why we shoot primarily Nikon over Canon. It was strictly, uh, there was a precedent set. And if you buy, say, 
thousands of lenses in, in one camera series. Uh, it just makes more sense to continue with those bodies and upgrade the bodies as they age. Um, so really it just came down to, you know, they looked at uh, the Air Force as a whole and said, well, the majority of the units have invested in Nikon glass. So it just makes sense to kind of continue with that. If we were to shift over to Canon, you know, we'd have to start from scratch. So we, we, we kind of already started, of I mean, per unit. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars potentially. And the reason they do that is if you think about it, if I were to deploy downrange or something and I had a camera body break on me, I could get a camera body or a lens from anybody else in, in the AOR, in the area of responsibility or from a local unit and have it adapt right to my camera and go. Versus if there was no standard, they might have Canon, I might have Nikon, somebody might have Sony. So you really had, they had to standardize at some point. And yeah, years ago, they just said, we're, we're gonna standardize to Nikon. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. It's just kind of like in, in the maintenance world of aviation, if you standardize on one sort of fleet type, you know, it's the maintenance cost and the parts cost is, is way down compared to like another, a mixed fleet with multiple different sure, aircraft yeah. in that sense. Yeah, like when I was, my listeners know this, but when I was deciding between the 5D Mark IV and the D850, you actually were a big help because I went to you first and because you have experience with both platforms. And I took what you said into account and, you know, I came out with the 5D and I'm really glad I did. Continuing that talk, let's let's talk about the basics of photography. A lot of people like me, I never understood what depth of field meant or the rule of thirds or shutter speed with ISO or, uh-huh. you know, the different autofocus types like AFS, AFC, AFA. So let's just kind of talk about that. Let's, let's talk about what is depth of field for those that don't know. Sure. So I will say, you know, there's there's some pretty basic fundamentals in photography, you know, whether that's you're talking the, the function of the camera, you know, you have different settings, you've got shutter speed. Um, you've got your aperture setting, um, and really, it's it's there's kind of a triangle. You have to have you know a balance between different uh, settings to to make an image show properly. So really, yeah. what you're doing is you're you're pointing a camera at something, and you're telling the camera, "I want to absorb so much light through this lens into the sensor to create an image." Because that's that's really all photography is is absorbing the light, what's in, what's in front of you, you know, what you're looking at. And there's, there's different ways you can do that, um, or different ways you can control how the light is brought into the sensor or, you know, onto the, onto the film. Um, the easiest way that I can kind of like talk about it is, um, it's, it's all dependent on how things move or how things don't move. Um, so for example, if you're shooting something that's really steady or stagnant, like a landscape photo, you can leave the exposure open for a really long time because there's no movement. There's, it's not going to create blur and that's, that's more of a motion blur. And I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll talk a little bit about the difference between intentional blur and unintentional blur and motion and bokeh here in a second. So, you know, you could have something sitting still. For example, I shoot a lot of astrophotography on the side on the weekends and stuff. You know, I can leave the shutter open for anywhere from 15 to 20 seconds and not see star trails movement. You know, I'm not bumping the camera. It's, it's still going to be a nice crisp image, but as things start moving, you have to speed up the shutter. And that's the basic reason is that you have to kind of capture that moment. You know, it's, it's like a freeze frame. So if you've ever watched a movie on your TV and you try pausing it, 
you know, if somebody's just talking, they're having dialogue and you pause your TV, you get a nice crisp image of that person on your screen. You know, sometimes you get the funny image of somebody with their mouth open or um, I think it's actually a really good analogy because now if you try to pause it when a car is screaming by the screen, you pause that TV. Now you just have kind of a blurry image on your TV. That's kind of the same for photography. If you think about it, you know, using that pause button is literally what your shutter is doing. It's opening and closing really quickly. It's, it's stopping. It's taking a pause in your camera and saying, this is what I want to capture. So the only way you can capture something moving fast is by increasing the shutter speed, you know, a little bit, you know, quicker. Um, yeah. So obviously you have to have a balance. Like I said earlier, there's a triangle. So you've got shutter in one of those corners. The other is going to be your ISO. It used to be called ASA on uh, 35 millimeter film. And that was basically the speed or the, the thickness of the film. It was how quickly things can absorb into that, um, in, into that film. That loosely translates into a, into a, to a, to a digital camera in, in the uh, ISO world. Um, so we call it ISO and most cameras have a, a standard operating ISO. Uh, I think mine on the Mark four, well, I guess ours on the Mark four is around 200 mm. Mark. Um, some yeah. other cameras, I think Nikons are somewhere, I forget what it is. It's, it's, it's above a hundred, but I think it's like a hundred, it's a weird number. It's like 140 or something like that. I thought, yeah, they had, they do like, like for like a hundred to 125, 160, yeah. 185. They have like those really weird. Yeah. It's a strange, ISOs. it's slightly different, but you know, it's, it, in layman's terms, I guess it's the lowest setting, right? It's like, yeah. typically, I don't know why Canon's pushes a little bit higher than <clears throat> the lowest, which would be a hundred, but you know, it just seems to be the, the peak quality. Yeah. And you can kind of, the reason why people compare ISO to ASA is that as you increase ISO, it starts getting noisier in darker environments. So once you start pushing over 1600 ISO, 3200 ISO, even up to 6400, it starts getting a little bit more grainy. Well, that translates to ASA film in that ASA film got grainier the faster it needed to be. So if you look at old 35 millimeter photos, action photos were really grainy versus portraitures, which were an ASA of like 200 or 250 were very clean, no noise images. And I think, I think honestly, that's why there's more of a correlation rather than the numbers kind of matching up is that there, you know, it's, it's, it's about noise in your imagery. So, yeah. uh, we talked about shutter at one top of the triangle. Uh, we talked about ISO at the other. So the last one is aperture. An aperture is uh, kind of like, it's like the donut of your camera. It's like, you know, the, <laughs> it's the ring that allows the amount of light to come through. So shutter yeah. is how quickly it's opening and closing. Aperture is the amount of light that you allow to come into the sensor at any given time. And that's important. So I say at any given time. So if you have, yeah. uh, you know, I'm using my hands here, so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, uh, kind of translate it into words, but if you have something that's like a ring, a circle, and it's wide, it's wide open, you know, it's, it's the full diameter of that ring. You're allowing as much light in as possible. When I, again, going back to at any given time, you set your shutter to open and close based on that amount of light that's tunneling in through your lens at your sensor. Uh, now, as you close the aperture, uh, it, it starts closing that circle down, kind of like a, uh, like a portal, you know? And so mm -hmm. as the portal closes, you have to, if you want that same exposure, you have to compensate for that. So as the portal closes, the shutter speed has to get, uh, has to get a little bit slower so that you're allowing more light. So there's actually a mathematical equation to it. There's actually a lot of math in photography. Um, <laughs> if, if, if you have a hard, uh, or a difficulty understanding like fractions, you, you might struggle in photography because um, that, that that is all <laughs> photography is, is a balance of math equations and really lots is. of numbers. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
it really comes down to to practice. You know, you, after a while, you can look at charts and stuff. You can look at graphs that say at this uh, shutter speed, you should be at this aperture or on a cloudy day, you know, you should be at around, you know, this and that. And that, that's true. There are some general rules, but it really just comes down to uh, just kind of memorizing them, right? Just like the same way you, you memorize your times tables when you're a child, you know, six times six is 36. I can spout that off because I memorize that. Well, I can also yeah. memorize that at one, one twenty-fifth, I can capture a human running or at one thirtieth, I can track with something pretty decently, or, you know, there's, you just kind of start learning and memorizing what these settings can do for you. So yeah. uh, it really comes down to how you want your images to look. What are you looking to do? And every photographer is going to have a different uh, style of shooting. Like I shoot, for example, I shoot two thirds stop down on my camera, no matter what. So wherever I'm shooting, I like to shoot almost a full stop down a little bit darker so that when I'm editing photos and post, I can bring out a little bit more of those shadows and really have my images pop a little bit uh, versus shooting at zero exposure or possibly a little bit overexposed and having my highlights blown out. So that's, that's just, yeah. you know, and maybe that's a little bit more technical speak that we need, but that's just my personal, you know, I have a way that I shoot and everybody has a, a different style of shooting. But really going back to the, the basics, you know, you've got those, tri the triangle, shutter, aperture, and ISO. And all photography is, is a perfect combination of those to get the image that you want. For those that don't know what an aperture looks like, just look at any cliche camera shot. They always have an aperture in their logo. And going what you said about the exposure compensation shooting uh, down two thirds, I actually keep mine down at one third. I'd rather not like like what John said is, if you overexpose your photo, it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder to recover that photo because the highlights and the shadows are just already just overexposed. And if you shoot down more, you have more wiggle room per se. Yeah. So the way that I always tell people is that you can't get highlights back. So if something is white in an image, it's white, there's nothing else back there. So, I mean, and I'm talking bright white, like brilliant white, like a sheet of paper yeah. white. So if I'm exposed for something and there's this bright spot that's white, when you're shooting raw imagery, and we can talk about raw versus JPEG later, but when you're shooting raw yes. imagery, yeah. there is no data, there's no digital information in that white space. So if I'm photographing something and there's a white sky behind it with clouds and I expose that sky all evenly and it looks like one big white blob, there's no data there. I can never recover those clouds again. But if I shoot a little more underexposed and I can see those clouds, it retains the darker information better. I guess that's the best way of saying it is that I can pull imagery out of a shadow. What might look like almost pure blackness, there's more like more than likely there's imagery there, there's data there. So you're more likely able to pull from dark shadows than you are from bright overexposed skies. Wow, that's, I just learned yeah. <laughs> something right there. That's a great tip. And I actually might try that now on a, on a very kind of, especially during the more midday yep. lighting, I, I actually yeah. might try that now, um, see how that works out. Now that we have our, our triangle put together, our ISO, our shutter and our aperture, uh, let's talk about shooting sure. jets, uh, commercial airliners, fighter jets, or whatever. So what should somebody have on a, on a, on a relative setup to shoot stuff like this? Because that's the question I get asked the most is, how should I set up my camera to shoot sure. jets? What I tell them is, ISO a little bit higher, get the shutter speed up a little bit more, but each camera is different. Absolutely. 
and you can only max your shutter out so fast. You know, you're, um, yeah. so for my camera, I think I'm shooting at about one five thousandth. I think that's about as fast. I think. That's the, I think yeah. about the five. Yeah, somewhere around yeah. there. Um, so bump your ISO up as high as you need to get to that highest shutter speed. So you don't need to necessarily go to, you know, ISO 3200 if you've already maxed out your shutter speed at ISO 800, you know, and in the, in yeah. the middle of the day in a, you know, bright sunshiny day, you probably don't need to go over 800. I wouldn't think, um, unless you're maybe working with some sort of, I don't know, like even some sort of crop sensor or a, a micro four thirds might have something like that. Yeah. But yeah, you don't need to push too far over that. Plus, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you're going to start introducing yourself to noise once you get over, you know, depending on the camera, even the, mm -hmm. the, the most basic camera, you know, you don't want to push over, I don't know, I'd say 800 or 1600. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, make sure you, you've got your, your maximum shutter speed that, that you want. Now I will say, I don't necessarily push my shutter speed to max speed to capture something like that. And, and the reason why is I like having that tracking blur in the background. Now, if you put your shutter speed at the, the fastest possible setting, even if you swing your camera right to left 90 degrees or 180 degrees with an aircraft, if your shutter speed is too fast, you're not going to get any motion blur. Your, your shutter is so fast that it will not only capture that fast moving aircraft, but you're also going to capture whatever it is behind it. And that, you know, I'm picturing like Jedi or like something where there's like the mountains behind yeah. you or like Rocky Canyon behind you. Where it gives some sort of sense of, of, of the object. Yeah, exactly. So if you shoot it too quickly, it looks like a helicopter. It looks like the jet is just sitting still. I like to have tracking uh, some motion blur behind me when I'm tracking with aircraft. Uh, so my typical speed is I'll, I'll usually go to about 1, 1 25th. Um, and that might seem pretty slow, but as long as you're a good tracker and you can track really smoothly with an aircraft, you'll nail that, you know, that sharp shot on that aircraft. That's it's a fast enough shutter speed to get a nice, you know, crisp image. And you're just going to have beautiful blur behind you. I, I think that's my, I don't know. That's kind of my ideal, uh, shutter speed and we can go into uh, priority levels and stuff in a second, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So it, again, this kind of goes back to it's, it's how do you want your images to look? Uh, it's a personal preference. So some photographers really like, uh, similar to landscape photography where the foreground and the background look seamless. You know, it's one big open aperture. Um, what's in the front of you looks the same focus as what's behind you. And a lot of, uh, air, uh aircraft photographers like that look, they mm -hmm. like to see the setting that the aircraft is in. They want to see where it is. But I'm kind of more the mindset. I like kind of more, a more artistic image. So I, I like having that blurry uh, background. And another thing too is when you shoot propeller-driven aircraft, i.e. a C-130 or a P-3 or even a Cessna sure. for that matter. Because what I normally do is if, if the jet or the aircraft is in blue sky, you know, I usually keep my settings pretty high because it's just a blue sky shot. You don't know if what settings you're on. Now, if you have like a, propeller driven aircraft is a little bit different so if you were shooting into like a blue sky situation and you had let's say a q400 come in what would you do to lower your um, shutter speed but also keep it up enough or it wouldn't be too sure blurry? so it's really going to depend on engine speed um there's definitely a uh, a range that you'll want to shoot in but if it's if your shutter is too quick 
it's going to look like the props are just sitting still on the aircraft. I mean, if you're shooting at yeah. one one thousandth or higher, there is a very good chance, almost guaranteed, that it's going to look like again, like something's just sitting still. You don't necessarily. I mean, you don't really want that. You you know, this is a an aircraft that's moving. The engines are turning. The airplane is flying. You want to convey that, so you want to slow the shutter down enough yeah. where you can see motion in those blades turning. Now, if you slow it down too much, you're going to get basically what just looks like a disc. Uh, it, it'll look like a weird little circle kind of hovering, you know, right around the engine. So there, there is a middle ground. Um, again, I do feel like that one, one, one twenty-fifth to one two fiftieth, maybe even one five hundredth, is a safe area to shoot like that. Uh, you'll get just enough of that blur from the rotors that you see motion. But again, you have to compensate somehow. So. I guess this is as good as time as any to talk about priority settings on a camera. So, um, yeah. And this is a great explanation of why they have them on a camera. So when you look at the dial on the top of a DSLR, uh, or a mirrorless camera, you know, you see M for manual, a for aperture, S for shutter. Every camera is different, but those are your three big settings. Um, so for something like this, I would suggest somebody shoot in shutter priority. You know, you, you have a specific objective that you're trying to achieve, and that is to get the motion, right, at a certain speed. So you'd set your camera to yep. a shutter priority, uh, set your speed to what you want, and obviously it's going to take some practice. You're going to have to do this a few times. You're not going to nail it the first try. Um, but practice panning with an aircraft or practice shooting an aircraft that has engines running and you'll start to see the difference. So uh, if you start at shutter priority and you start, I don't know, start fast, start at one one thousandth and then kind of start ticking down, work your way down. So one eight hundredth, one five hundredth, one two fifty, one one twenty five and see just kind of what the final project is. See how the, those blades look to you to get that uh, the best quality or the best uh example of an engine turning looks like to you. And then from there, once you get to your, you know, the number that you want, we'll call it one two fiftieth. Once you're at one two fiftieth, keep it on that. And then when you're shooting, the camera will automatically adjust your aperture to compensate. So if it, if a cloud comes over and it starts getting darker, it's going to open the aperture a little bit more for you. If all of a sudden you're turning and you're faced more to the sun, it's going to automatically close the aperture for you. Um, because it now thinks, okay, there's too much light coming in. And I, I know that, you know, that, yeah. that shutter setting that we have to maintain. So we're going to go ahead and close that aperture a little bit. And a lot of people think that aperture priority or shutter priority is like automatic mode, but it, it's really not. I mean, it's, you're trying yeah. to a, achieve an objective, a specific objective. And especially when you're shooting something quick, right? Like an aircraft flying past you, you don't have time mm -hmm. to make those quick adjustments. If you say, I want to shoot at, you know, one, one twenty-fifth or one two fiftieth and an aircraft is flying by, you don't have time to make an aperture adjustment as it's flying past you. Your, your number one priority is to keep the lens focused on that aircraft as it's passing by. If you have the tools to let the camera make an automatic adjustment on the aperture, why wouldn't you use that now? And again, a lot of people think that those buttons mean that you're like an automatic photographer or that you're not doing the same work as somebody that's shooting in manual mode, there's a place for manual. There's a place for shutter priority. There's a place for aperture priority. So yeah, I like to dispel that myth as, as often as possible that those buttons for any reason, people assume that are automatic modes or anything like that. They're absolutely not. Absolutely agree with you there. For an example, I shoot manual 
in lower light situations because I can pick the aperture, I can pick my own shutter, I can underexpose the photo if I need to. My primary, I shoot aperture priority. I always leave my camera at a certain aperture and I know it's always going to be right. But um, when I'm shooting slower, I will go to shutter priority so I can slow it down and have the cameras adjust the shutter for me automatically. And I think you worded it beautifully as they're not automatic, you know, it's not an automatic. You still have to make all the other adjustments. You still have to use, like if you shoot shutter, you still have to pick, you still have to pick what shutter is going to be right. You still have to do your ISO. You still have to do your uh, yep. exposure compensation. You know, you still have a lot of input, whereas just an automatic mode, sure. all yep. that's covered for you. And a plus, if you shoot outside automatic mode, your photos are a lot better than having the camera do it for you because the camera the camera can see what is best for the camera, but no, it's not the best for your photos yeah, or absolutely. for what you want. And, you know, in addition to that, I still control, you know, I still have my camera set at two-thirds stop down. So I'm still telling it, even though your sensor reads it a certain way, I want my photo a little bit darker than what your brilliant camera brain is telling you to do. So again, that's another input yeah. that I'm telling it like, Hey, I'm going to, I want it set at this speed. Uh, you adjust the aperture cause it's, it's way too fast for me. I'm going to focus on focusing on the object, tracking with the object. Um, but I've also, I've already made all those other inputs to the camera. And also, um, I was actually going to ask you this question as well. When I had my setup before I got my Canon, I used to keep my aperture about nine or eight. Um, that was yep. the sweet spot. However, some photos, the nose came out a little bit blurry, but the rest of the aircraft was sharp. If I were to move the aperture mm -hmm. to say 10, the rear of the aircraft was blurry, but the front of it was still sharp. So it was kind of a very weird thing that was happening because I had some of these really gorgeous photos, but the front was Sure. Well, let's talk about blurry. depth of field a little bit then. Um, Cause that's, that's kind of yeah, where let's, I think let's do that, that. where you're going with that. So depth of field is I always, whenever I have, you know, people that I'm training in photography, I always draw it on a whiteboard. And the way that I draw it is I draw it from a bird's eye view. So looking top down on an object. So if you've got a person and you know, they're, they're point a try to picture it like two crushing walls, like in like star Wars, a new hope. Do you remember the scene where they're in the garbage compactor? Yep. And they all go down yeah. there and they're trying to yep. put so that pole in. Use those walls, the garbage compactor as your example for the area that's in focus. So anything that's on those outside of the, those walls is blurry. That's what we call depth of field. That is the area in which when you're looking at something, something is in focus. And that's typically controlled by your aperture. So if you're at a really uh, small aperture, if you're at, uh, or I'm sorry, a wide open aperture, if you're at F2.8 or uh, 1.4, you know, on a portrait lens or something, you have a very narrow depth of field. That means that those walls are extremely tight. They're very close. So if you have an object, for example, I, I do a lot of portrait photography too. So if I'm doing a portrait of somebody and I have a very shallow depth of field and it's at, we'll say 1.8 aperture and I focus on that person's eyeball and I'm only about four or five feet away from them, more than likely both their ears and their nose are gonna be slightly blurry. And that's because the depth of field is so shallow on a portrait lens that you might only get two inches of depth. Now, as I open up the aperture and I start going up to F4, F5.6, 7, 1, 9, 11, that aperture start or the depth of field starts widening out. Okay, so it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
So you could shoot in theory. Now, if I were to do that same photograph, that portrait of that person focused on their eyeball at F 5.6, it's opened up wide enough that now that depth of field is covering their whole face. And you see that in a lot of amateur, uh, photography, amateur portrait photography. And there, there is some artistic argument for doing it, but sometimes people will shoot portraits on way too uh, shallow depth of field um, to the point where you do get a blurry yeah. ear or a blurry nose, tip of the nose. You always want to make sure that when you're doing a portrait that you're getting the, you know, the full face uh, in focus or in within the depth of field. And the same goes for that aircraft. So the way you were shooting, you may have been physically too close to the aircraft or in a, maybe it wasn't even too close. It would actually be almost too far away because there is a exponential uh, correlation with where you, the distance you're physically standing from your subject to the, the depth of field. So for example, if I was only four feet from that individual, when I took the picture, that depth of field is an inch. But if I move further away from them, that depth of field increases. So it's, it's, there's a direct correlation with the distance to the subject and how shallow that depth of field is. And you can see that with telephoto lenses a lot. So if I'm on a 70 to 200 yeah. and I'm shooting at 70 millimeters, that depth of field appears to be really deep. I have a lot of range there, but as I zoom in on something, it starts crushing that depth of field. It starts pulling it in closer and closer, which is why you get better quality. The term is bokeh or, you know, background blur in an image, the further you zoom in on a telephoto lens, uh, because you're, you're crushing that depth of field. You're getting, uh, more of that area behind the subject, uh, is becoming blurred out. That's beautifully said. And I just learned a lot right there. Um, especially now thinking about it when I was shooting with my old setup, you know, maybe I should have bumped up a little bit more Yeah, so that could have helped. Yeah, one easy way to, to get increased clarity out of your images like that is to get closer to the subject and zoom a little bit further back. So if you are standing far away from something at 200 millimeters, uh, if there's room for you to get closer to the subject, get closer and back out to 70 millimeters and you'll get a sharper, uh, a sharper image than you would have zoomed in at 200. Now, zooming in at 200 gives you, like I said, that buttery, you know, bokeh effect in the background but you're more guaranteed to have, you know, the wider, crisper uh, shot by simply approaching the object and backing off a little bit on the zoom. And at the end of the day too, is all that blurriness or out of focusness would be on that outer, would already be cut away, I'm assuming as well, because those with the edges of, of the depth of field are already, you're gonna be cut. Yeah, I mean, especially in aviation photography, you know, if you're cropping solely on the aircraft, you know, you're not, you're not looking for the background necessarily you're, you're cropping pretty tight to the aircraft. Yeah. So again, that's, that's an artistic choice. You know, how you choose to crop the images. Um, I try to frame, you know, if I'm shooting an aircraft flying by, I try my hardest to frame the aircraft to fill the frame as much as possible, but giving me a little bit of extra space so that I can, uh, if I need to rotate the image a little bit, you have that ability. Uh, if you, if you are cropped in to the point where you're edge to edge on your camera, it doesn't give you that ability to, to rotate the image and post. So I always give myself just a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. again, artistic interpretation. If you want the background in there, you'd obviously shoot a little bit wider. Um, but if you're just going for the aircraft, you know, you'd shoot pretty tight. Agreed, man. I mean, I always come out a little bit wider now, just in case I, you know, I had to level something or I need to crop something a little bit tighter and all that. And that's always a good practice to do, especially if you're starting out is keep it a little bit wider. You have a lot Absolutely. more room to play with as well. We talked about mm -hmm. lenses a little bit. Uh, we talked about our 
our shutter aperture and manual priorities. We talked about our, our, our triangle. So let's, let's go to the actual instrument of what everybody will be using. Let's yeah. talk about the actual cameras. So for someone who's just getting into this, you know, a new plane spotter who's seen, who's been inspired by a lot of fantastic photographers out there, and they want to go down to the local airport and start mm-hmm. taking photos of airplanes. What should someone like that person be looking for in a beginner That's camera? a very good question. It's also a bit of a loaded question. You know, it's kind of like telling someone what kind of car should you yeah. buy. Um, it really just depends yeah. on what you want it for. The biggest investment, and this is something that my mentor was actually my brother-in-law years ago. He told me, you know, the biggest investment you can make in photography is in lenses. It's all in glass. If you yeah. think about it, a camera is nothing but a canvas, right? And every canvas is essentially the same. It's just the quality of the paint that you're going to put on it. Well, in this case, the quality of the paint is the lens that you're using. So as light, you know, is coming through your lens, if you have really foggy or plastic, plastic is used in a lot of cheaper lenses, you're going to get foggy, cheaper imagery on your sensor. But if you have basically crystal or high quality glass in your lens, you're going to get crystal-like imagery. You're going to get, you know, something that's as sharp as it was as you saw it coming onto your sensor. So just before I get any further, I just want to say a lens is always going to be your greatest investment. That's where you're going to get the quality Mm -hmm. of your imagery from. It's not from the camera. You could have a $5,000 camera body with a $200 lens on there and it's going to look like you smeared a Snickers bar across your lens. It's just, it's not going to look good. Um, (laughs) But again, you could put a $3,000 lens on a $500 camera body. And you're going to have, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between uh, me shooting on my 5d Mark four, or if you slap that lens on a T2i, which is, I think you could get now for probably $300. I guarantee you the average person won't be able to tell the difference. And the reason being is it's, it's just a photo sensor. They they're only so capable of doing so much. Now, with that being said, yes, there are limitations and they can only do so much. And there is a reason why the Canon 5D Mark IV costs so much more money than a Canon T2i. Um, They're obviously not the same (laughs) camera and they have different uh, abilities. But so just to start that discussion off, lenses is where you're going to make your money. That's not to say you have to go out and buy a two to $3,000 lens right away. But you probably don't want to go buy a $100 lens at a pawn shop. So with that being said, you know, it's going to vary for every person what your budget is. Um, if you can afford uh, to get a full frame camera, I'd always suggest that. Or nowadays, mirrorless cameras, you know, the quality has just gotten so, so good. But most people can't, you know, the average person can't go out and spend one to $3,000 on a camera body. So like, for example, I started off with that Canon T2i. Uh, I think as a full kit, that cost me $700. I got the camera body, um, a pretty mid range, like a, I can't remember what it was. Something that, you know, went up to like maybe 55 millimeters or 70 millimeters. And then I got that uh, Tamron 28 to 300 lens to give me, you know, whether birding or nature photography or things like that. And it, it worked, Uh, you know, it, it took pictures. Uh, They weren't the sharpest pictures. They weren't the best pictures, but it got me by. And, that's really what I would recommend to anybody that wants to start. Get something that's not going to cost you a fortune. You can shoot with it for a little bit and see if it's what you enjoy doing. You know, going back to my analogy of mountain biking, it makes no sense to go spend thousands of dollars on something that you've never done before because you don't know if you're going to enjoy it. 
why buy a $50,000 brand new Jeep if you've never Jeeped before, if you've never off-roaded? What if that's not for you? You get out there and you're like, yeah, this isn't my thing. Um, so start small, but don't go cheap also. So again, there's a balance there. There are plenty of great companies out there. Obviously the big ones right now are Sony, Canon, and Nikon. Um, there are plenty of other Pentaxes kind of right there behind them. Um, and a few other cam- few other companies yeah. out there that are doing really good work. Even I've, I've heard a lot of people buying the new Kodak mirrorless cameras and stuff. Like there's, there, there are some fun cameras out really? there that you can buy. You don't necessarily have to buy, you know, the name brand, the top of the line um, camera there. Again, this is, this is, if you're just starting off, if you're experimenting, if you're thinking I, I might want to get into this, you can get a good setup, whether that's, you know, we'll go, we'll go to the main ones, but a Canon or Nikon for under a thousand dollars, you know, for seven to $800, you can get a crop sensor camera with a kit lens and just, you know, teach yourself, experiment a little bit. And then if, you know, if you figure, okay, this is, this is for me, I want to invest more into it. Don't necessarily sell that camera and buy a new one, get a bigger lens, get a better lens, get a higher quality lens. And you'll, you'll start seeing your, your imagery, uh, increase drastically. So that's how, that's my best recommendation is start small. That's that I I can't agree with you more, especially with the lens part is when I first got in here, I started, I bought a little Sigma 70 to 300 and then I upgraded to the Sigma 150 to 500 and I went to the 50 to 500. The lens, especially like Canon L glass or Nikon's equivalent, you know, you spend thousands of dollars, but we'll talk about in a second. Uh, so you mentioned full frame sure. and crop body sensors. What is the difference between the two and what are the benefits so, of either or? Uh, crop sensors get a kind of a bad rap, I think. Um, I've shot on crop sensors for years. Um, and my, you know, I've got a Canon 7D. That's a crop sensor. I love that camera. It's a workhorse. It's a fast camera. Um, it's actually designed for like action photography. So you'll see a lot of sports photographers shooting on 7Ds um, because they have a high... Uh, a high frame rate they can shoot at what is it i think seven frames per second versus my 5d i think was only shooting at five or something like that wow. um so it's it's a fast camera but if you think about it this way i always try to relate it to televisions uh, because most people nowadays are familiar with what hdtv is or um, hdtv you know a, a 1080p television right so that's 1080 1920 by 1080 so think of a crop sensor as a 720 tv so it's it's uh, the same amount of pixels, but it's just kind of reduced in size a little bit. Now, if you've got a 1080p TV, that just means that you're seeing a little bit more of the image. Um, that's all a crop sensor really is. It's, it's a physically smaller sensor that is just not able to show you as much as the image uh, at one given time. With the 1080, all it means is you can crop in afterwards a little bit more, right? With a full frame sensor, you can crop a little bit more. Whereas with the crop yeah. sensor, it's already kind of cropped in. So you're, you're not able to zoom in as much in post. What I try to tell people is a crop sensor is only bad if you plan on cropping a lot, right? That's the, that's the, only, that's the only time that you're ever going to yeah. notice a difference in a crop sensor versus a full frame sensor is if you're needing to crop the image a lot, which... Again, that goes back to just simply planning ahead of time, um, framing your shot well, and realizing that, yeah, you don't have the ability to crop in nearly as much. Whereas on the 5D with higher megapixel count, you're able to crop in a significant amount. I can already right off the bat crop uh, about a quarter of that image off, or maybe not a quarter, but a sixth of that image off and still be at the same 
basic resolution as a crop sensor because I've got all that additional size on that on that sensor. So that's really all it comes down to is the it's it's the physical size of the sensor. That statement you just said, I just had a photo I took. Uh, you might have seen it on my stream. It's a Sunset P8, and that is. Uh-huh very very cropped if i was using my old setup i could have not taken that shot i wouldn't have even attempted that shot to try and crop it since with the full frame i had that expanded frame if it looks like you know i had to size it down a little bit more just so it's not relevant but still it looks like i was kind of right there all right so let's move it on let's let's have a little lens talk we have we mentioned telephoto lenses or wide angle lenses or ultra wide angle lenses. For aviation, I think we're all agreed upon, unless you're right up close to the aircraft or doing something extremely artistic, you want a telephoto lens, right? Absolutely. And telephoto is a very loose term. So even a 24 to 70 can be considered telephoto if it's it has a barrel adjuster, if the lens is moving in and out versus a prime lens, which is just strictly a 50 millimeter or a a 105 or a 135. Those are primes. Telephoto is really just anything that can zoom in and out. So in theory, and I might get some backlash for saying this, you could have a wide angle telephoto lens. You could have a 15 to 30 millimeter telephoto lens, technically. Mm -hmm. Um, Macro photography uses telephoto lenses, but you're, you know, you're, you're shooting something that's inches away from the front of your lens. Um, So telephoto is a very broad term, but yeah, I mean, I know, I agree with what you're saying. You want something that's got distance that you can get from afar. Yeah. So we were we mentioned it a little bit ago is the crop factor for a crop uh, a crop body. We have our our lenses. Say if you put a full frame lens on a crop body sensor, you actually have I say if, if it's a 500 millimeter lens, you actually have more than the 500 millimeters on the crop body, right? Sure. Yeah. So every crop body is a little bit different. Um, some are, um, you basically take the lens number and multiply it by 1.4 or 1.6. It depends on the size of your crop sensor. Like I said, each one's slightly different. So if you have a 200 millimeter lens, multiply that by 1.4 and you end up with, I think that's what, 280. Um, so essentially you end up with a 280 millimeter lens. Now it's not necessarily 280 millimeter lens. What that's doing is yes, it's, we'll call it a 280 millimeter lens on a crop sensor, okay? So you're able to get closer with, or what appears to be closer with that 280 millimeter lens. But if you were to put that on a full frame camera, you're at 200 millimeters, you can crop further in. You're getting the same amount of crop value on either camera or the same amount of, uh, the end product becomes the same, right? Because on a 5D, on a full frame camera, you could crop in and get that same picture versus on a cropped camera at 280, you're already there. You didn't have to do it necessarily in post. You didn't have to crop in to get there. The only downside to that on a cropped camera is that you can't shoot wider. Yeah. So on the fi- on a full frame camera, you, you always have the ability to have the wide shot and you can crop in on post. But if you're shooting on a crop frame, you're kind of forced to be zoomed in a little bit more. There, You can't back out further than that for example, the 70 to 200, I can't go back further than what 70 times 1.4 is. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the full frame, you can zoom out to 70 and then crop in afterwards. So that would really be the only, I don't want to, I don't even want to call it a negative because as a photographer in the moment, it's nice to be at that 280 uh, millimeters and have that in my frame and know that that's the shot I'm getting. 
versus having to go back later and post and, you know, do some more editing that I, you know, maybe I didn't need to do. I could have shot it in camera that way. Absolutely agree. Especially like with airshow photography, or if you're out there shooting low levels and you need that uh -huh. extra space. Um, another question I just brought up is for me personally is, so I'm hopefully going to be doing some low level jet photography here soon. And the one thing that I might look at is the 1.4 tele extender. Do you have any any experience with, with these extenders or anything like that? Or yeah, so I've got that exact extender. I think I have the the Mark Three or no, sorry, Mark Two. Um, I love it. I wish I had the 2.0 as well, uh, and maybe in the future I'll buy that one. Uh, but for bang for your buck, it is by far the best investment you can make if you're shooting something like you know on Canon 70 to 200. Slap that adapter on there. The only downside to it is it does slow your camera down a bit. So you go from an f2.8, put the adapter on there, and now the quickest you can go is f4. So it's kind of like putting a polarizer or an ND filter on your lens where it, you know, it's, it, it's an additional layer of glass that you're now putting between your lens and your camera, which slows it down a little bit. It just means the light has to go through another object to, you know, before it reaches your sensor. But when you're shooting outdoors, that really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, very rarely are you shooting, you know, a wide open aperture like that, that you need that kind of speed. So yeah, I, I would recommend that to any photographer that's looking to get some extra distance out of a quality lens like that. And I know, you know, I've talked to our friend Josh about this a little bit. He's got the uh, Tamron G2, yeah. 70 to 200, and he loves that lens. And Tamron now makes a, a tele extender for that lens as well. So there, it's not just, you're not just limited to Canon and Nikon or even Sony's products anymore. You know, now these third-party Sigma Tamron, they're making near equivalent lenses that are capable of shooting just as fast uh, photography. Yeah, and they have that quality as well. Um, I was just to say that yeah. our friend Josh, he shoots a Nikon D850. Uh, so we, as Canon guys, you know, we're kind of like, haha. But, you know, yeah. I, we can't complain because <laughs> Josh, if you're listening you have some absolutely amazing work that makes both of us very, very jealous. Um, yeah. To kind of go back to what we're saying is you don't have to drop $2,000 on Canon L glass, which is uh, the 70 to 200 and my 100 to 400 that I have, or the Nikon equivalent. You have Tamron makes an absolutely astonishing 70 to 200 for 600 bucks, I think. And it's yeah, and almost as, I mean, it's not, you know, Canon L glass quality, but it is up there in quality. It, it is so close that, I mean, unless you're doing, you know, really, really fine tuned photography testing, the average person's not going to know the difference. Yeah. Um, but unless you're doing like, you know, zoomed in at, you know, 800% to see the different, you know, pixels and stuff. I don't think the average person could tell the difference between a G2, a Tamron G2 and a, you know, a Canon uh, 7200. Yeah. They are amazing. They are so much more affordable. Um, and yeah, they've, they've come, they've come leaps and bounds from where they were when I started, you know, with digital photography about 10 to 12 years ago. Um, in addition to that, I actually have a couple Tamron G2 lenses. So my primary 24 to 70, my go-to lens is a Tamron G2. I love that lens. It's nearly identical in form function to the Canon uh, lens. Uh, also my wide angle, my 15 to 30 uh, is a Tamron G2 and I love it. Now I did splurge on the 70 to 200 mm -hmm. just cause in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, if I'm, if this is going to be a, you know, whether it's a portrait lens or an action photography lens, I want, you know, the best there is out there. Absolutely. And so I went with the Canon L glass. Um, but yeah, I, 
I fully endorse them as well. You know, the, the Tamron lenses, I love them. I shoot with them. They're great. And that's another thing too, is what we should say is, is what we went back to at the beginning of this episode. You don't have to spend a fortune to have some absolutely amazing photos. You don't have to spend that $5,000, $6,000. You can, you can get the lens and the setup for half of that and still be as good as the people shooting with 1DXs and all this other stuff. One thing I'll add too is if you're not sure what lens you want to buy, go rent a lens. There are so many lens rental companies out there. You know, some even have them locally. Yeah. Um, but online, you know, you can go to some of these companies. I'm not going to name drop any of them, but you can just Google lens rentals and you're going to find all these different companies that will ship you a lens in a box ready to go. You get it for one to five days, however many days you need it, and you ship it right back. And you may be paid anywhere from 15 to $100 a day versus spending $2,000 on a lens. Make sure you enjoy it. Make sure it's something that you like. Make sure it's not too heavy for you. You know, I have a lot of friends that are, <clears throat> excuse me, wildlife photographers and, you know, weight savings is a big deal to them. Yeah. So make sure it's not too bulky. Just great way to experiment with a lens, shoot with it for a weekend and send it back and then decide later on down the road, is that something I want to buy? Yep, I can vouch for that too. There's a company here that I used a brand new 70 to 200 USF 3 which retails for $2,200. I used it for three days for 62. I mean, yeah, this got seriously rent the lens, especially if you're on the fence about buying, if you're like with me as a Pentax guy and you're going between Nikon and Canon or even Sony, that's a great way to find out if that setup is going to be good for you. I a hundred percent agree with you there, John. So anyway, man, um, let's start wrapping it up. Do you think we need to talk about anything else that we might have left out? You know, I'm just going to reiterate, you know, photography is a very personal thing. Um, so everybody's going to have a different experience with it. You know, people are going to be shooting different things, whether that's sports, birds, airplanes, tanks, who knows what you're <laughs> shooting, which maybe I shoot all those things. Yeah. But, uh, it, it really just comes down to what kind of experience you want to get out of it. And I know I used the analogy earlier about a mountain bike but it really just comes down to how much do you want to invest in it? Is it something that you want to become a big part of your life? Or are you just a weekend warrior that wants to spend, you know, a few hundred bucks and go out once a month and shoot some, some nice pictures. But I think you really need to, if you're thinking about getting into this world, think about what you want out of it. And if it's something that you want to do a lot, it's worth investing in. You know, it's, you, you shouldn't shy away from, from putting some money into your gear. You will definitely reap it on the back end of your photography. You know, your photos will look better. But with that being said, it's not all about the equipment. And this is this is said, you know, day in and day out in the film community, that it's not about what you're shooting on. Um, it's about storytelling. It's about capturing an image. Um, you could shoot a movie on an iPhone today, honestly. I'm not saying it's gonna be, you know, Dunkirk or, you know, one of the best looking pictures on a 4K screen and IMAX, but you can tell a story yeah. with it. And this, the same goes for photography. Capture a good image, tell a good story, caption caption the photo really well, and just enjoy it. It's all about just, you know, having a good time when you're out there. Well said, man. I, I agree with you on that, especially a lot of the smartphones now, they just opened up a world of, of photography that wasn't there 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it's just opened a door for a lot of other people to get into it. And I think that's a great way to start out just taking, that's how I mainly started is I got my first smartphone in 2012. And that's how I started taking photos and just snowballed from there. But um, going back to the beginning of the episode, you won awards for your photos. Your photos have been published. Where can the listener go and find your work? Where can they see what you've taken photos of and all that? Um, so my personal site is 10thstreetmedia.com. 
um, just 10thstreetmedia.com, all one word. Um, and yeah, you know, I try to share as much there as possible. Um, I, you know, I forward a little bit of my military stuff in there, but more, that's mostly my, um, I guess my, my personal collection that's on there. And then if you want to see some of my military work, you can go to dividshub.net uh, slash John Wynn. I believe that's the address. And uh, yeah, you can see some of my more military work on there. My military bio uh, is on there as well. Awesome, man. Well, go check him out, guys. I follow him and just trust me, go follow him. Go check him out. You won't be disappointed. But anyway, John, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on here and hopefully educate the listener about photography. I know you educated me a lot more now than I knew an hour ago. So I thank you for that, and I think the listener will thank you as well. And anyway, guys, like I said in the beginning, if you know those ad geeks who want to come on and talk about aviation with me, send me an email, askspotterspodcast at gmail.com. Send me that DM on Twitter and Instagram at Spotter. Check us out on Facebook. Ask Spotters Podcast. And as always, keep those batteries charged and those cameras ready. And we'll catch you next time here on the Aviation Spotters Podcast. <laughs>